Welcome to Beyond My Title. I'm Nikiba and I wear a variety of hats. I'm a sales advisor at a startup in New York City, but that's my nine to five. Beyond My Title, I created a skincare line in my dorm room kitchen in 2010. Three years later, I launched Cori Renee, a plant-powered skincare line that is inspired by nature and powered by plants. I am very passionate about empowering others through storytelling. I believe that we all have a unique story and it goes deeper than our title. I created this podcast to share conversations about how we identify ourselves, our work, and the legacy we wish to leave behind. This podcast was brought to you by Bib Media. Born in Brooklyn, believe the hype. Welcome to Beyond My Title. I'm Nikiba and I wear a variety of hats. I'm a sales advisor at a startup in New York City, but that's my nine to five. Beyond my title, I created a skincare line in my dorm room kitchen in 2010. Three years later, I launched Cori Renee, a plant-powered skincare line. And since then, I've innovated communities, campaigns, classrooms, and curriculums all over the Northeast. I created this podcast to encourage conversations about how we identify ourselves, our work, and the legacy we wish to leave behind. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So happy to have you, Sally. Sally Hubbard is an attorney and expert on antitrust and big tech merger enforcement. She's a senior editor and investigative journalist and wants people to have a fair shot in multifaceted markets. She's the host of Women Killing It podcast and former assistant attorney general. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. Well, what a journey. It's been a long and wild journey, that's for sure. So. If I were to ask you, what is your title? Oh, geez. There's a lot of titles, right? Um, my title for my regular job that pays the bills is uh, head of monopolization enforcement and senior editor at the Capitol Forum. Then, of course, I'm a podcast host, a mother, a wife, uh, whatever else, a sister. <laughs> yeah. All the different ways that we identify ourselves, right? For sure. For sure. Well, growing up, how would you identify yourself, young Sally? Hmm. Pretty nerdy. <laughs> um, I was always a straight A student. I did have a lot of friends in social life, but I was very studious, like straight A's forever. Wow. Um, even in college, I had straight A's. Scholar. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, always a feminist. My my mother took me to you know feminist organizing meetings when I was like five years old. Wow. Yeah. She well, put me in a Ms. Onesie my, when I was when I was a baby. A onesie that said Ms. Because you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ms. is a more empowering term than Mrs. or Miss. Yeah. So. Definitely. What was that like for you being at those meetings? Well, at five, some of us can remember those memories at five, but what was it like growing up with, with your mom and attending these different events? It was cool. I mean, I always uh, had a really keen sense of justice and equality, so it resonated with me from a really young age. And we did lots of marches on Washington. and <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I always felt really aligned with that, you know, with that side of her. Where were you in relation to Washington growing up? I grew up in Delaware, so it was about a two and a half hour drive to uh, Washington, D.C. So it wasn't every day we were down there, but um, definitely it was something that always informed the way that I viewed the world. I guess the other thing I should say about myself as a young child was I was very animal loving, family of animal rescuers. So I grew up with lots of pets. 
That's awesome. <laughs> what, what type of pets did you have? Mostly cats. Yeah. At all times, we had about eight. Wow. And um, two dogs. Nice. Yeah, but my family would rescue anything, including my brother. Like, you, they see a turtle crossing oh. the road and going, like, about to head into the traffic. They would stop the car, walk out, put the turtle on the other side of the oh road that it was gosh. heading. That's awesome. <laughs> Bird rescue. Everything you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Do you have pets currently? I do. I have just, well, I have two cats, and then I, I feed a neighborhood cat in the backyard also. Oh, I know Recently, that cat is a happy cat. <laughs> Recently lost a couple hamsters, and I was actually okay with that. I felt like I was losing my animal-loving credentials when I was like, okay, good. I don't have to feed those hamsters anymore. Yeah. Well, I feel like with with the eight eight animals that you grew up with and then the ones you have now, you've definitely <laughs> been an animal lover forever. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. So what were you curious about in addition to, you know, f- fighting for justice and animal-loving and... What, what was Sally curious about in Delaware? Growing up? Yeah. Wow, I don't know. I'm always telling my children that it was just such a different childhood than what they're having. So there was actually a lot of boredom. Yes. So I have no tolerance for when my children tell me they're bored in New York City. I always tell them, <laughs> go try to find a four-leaf clover. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I spent many hours yeah. of my childhood looking for four-leaf clovers. Like, yeah. that was entertainment. Um, so I guess I was curious about four-leaf clovers. I don't know. I was curious about a lot of things. I mean, I just love to I love to learn. Mm-hmm. My family were big travelers across the country all the time in That's an RV. Literally. What? Yeah. <laughs> Goals. I, so many people want to do that, myself included. So... Okay. Yeah. What What were some of the places that you visited in everywhere? That RV? I've been to almost all of the states of America. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, we would take vacations during the school year. Like, I don't think you could do that these days. <laughs> My parents would just be like, "We're gonna be gone for a month. We'll be back." Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, we went everywhere, everywhere. Um, but you know, I just always like to learn. So I would. I remember. My teacher would give me, like, here's your homework for the whole month. And I remember doing it on the very first day of my trip. Like, I was finished on the first day. Wow. And then I would spend my time, you know, learning about the state birds and, you know, like ridiculous things like that. Like, And then you'd see them in person yes. as you're traveling the country. <laughs> yes. I was wow. curious about everything. I just think I just had a real love of learning. That's amazing. So you mentioned your children. How, how many children do you have? I have two children. What is it like being a mother? It's amazing. Um, I had a real hard time with the early years. Mm -hmm. My daughter was um, colicky, so she cried constantly and never slept. Uh, So when people tell parents that have newborns and babies, like, it doesn't get any easier, I hear that a lot. People say that a lot. I firmly disagree. I think it does get easier. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I love it now. My, My children are in elementary school age and middle school age, and... I just think it's just the golden age of parenting. It's so wonderful. Um, But I thought the early years were really, really tough. I don't think there's enough kind of discussion about that, Yeah, about how hard it is. Definitely. I've I've chatted with a number of my friends that have children, and that's one of the things that they always share. So it's nice to, to hear that before I have children, just so that I'm like, you know, I don't think there's any time in life that you're necessarily prepared for children or motherhood, at least. But it's nice to have that that information so that you're you make, you know, you're you're ready for it. And you're like, 
you know, ready for those sleepless nights with with crying and all sorts of different moments, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing is to realize that it is a set period of time. Yeah. I know for me, I was like, what did I do to my perfectly good life? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. When I had a baby crying all the time, never sleeping, never eating. She was so hard. She's an angel now, but she was so hard. Is she the oldest? Yes. Nice. How old is she? She's 11 now. And how old is... I think I'm... I believe I met her one day. She was here. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She just wrote an article about antitrust law for her school paper, so she's making me proud. Wow. That's amazing. I enjoyed that side of parenting much more than the baby that won't sleep at night no <laughs> doubt no doubt and your youngest how old is your youngest um he's eight he's eight nice yeah. a boy and a girl yeah very nice very, um, they're the most wonderful children of course everyone thinks their children are the best but that's, that says something about parenting right yeah yeah wow so how is it balancing your varying identities yeah i mean i think balancing the identities is less challenging than balancing just the sheer workload yes. <laughs> and, and tasks that needs to get done in a given day. Um, I know a lot of people feel like they're always doing a bad job at one or the other if they're a working mother. I just kind of accept the chaos, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just live in a constant state of chaos, and um, I've just now I kind of embraced that and don't expect anything to be perfect or all of, you know, the tasks to be done. Um, And, uh, you know, I think we complicate things so much more than we have to. So I keep it simple. I've 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 heard that since elementary school. I definitely can can relate to trying to keep things simple. Um, one of the things that I admire about you is that you you know you include your children in on your you know your life. What is work life for mom? What is women killing it the podcast like for mom? I remember one day I saw your daughter in the studio with you as you were recording, and I was like, that's amazing, you know. Just and now she's writing about antitrust in her papers and. Yeah, and she actually did her own little podcast for a short period of time. Really? (laughs) What was that about? It was called Girls Winning It. Yes. Yeah, this is when she was nine. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so she interviewed all these little girls about, you know, what they were proud of. And I have to say, they know more than most of us. You know, it's like somehow we knew it all when we were young, especially nine-year-old girls are just sheer girl power. Yes. And then somehow we forget it. For sure. How do we tap back into that? They kept giving the greatest advice, like, just be yourself. You know, I'm like, yes, that's true. <laughs> we somehow lose that. We forget about it. We kind of get it beaten out of us, yeah. especially during the teen years and the early years of our professional career. And then we kind of start to come back to, wait, I want to be myself again. For sure. What is it like to be yourself? Or what is it like to strive for being yourself each day? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because... I'm just trying to get more and more toward the path of doing what is the right, you know, career path for myself. How am I fulfilling what it is that I'm here on this earth to do and really um, focusing on that. And I definitely have in parts of my career really had to put aside who I was, you know, like I started my career at a big law firm a huge law firm, very conservative atmosphere, super hierarchical and oppressive. 
And that is when you start to learn you cannot be yourself in yeah. that environment. And so yeah. I've been in a kind of a serious profession mm-hmm. uh, forever. And I keep always asking myself, how did I get in this serious profession? Because I'm not a serious person. Um, so I guess that's been my balance is how do I be true to myself and still fit in kind of the situations that I find myself, which is sometimes very serious situations. Like actually last week I was interviewing a commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission in front of an audience at my company's conference. Wow. And at one point I wanted to make a joke and I was like, I think maybe I should not make a joke right now because I'm interviewing this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this Federal Trade Commissioner. Yeah. Um, so I did not make a joke. <laughs> what do you think would have happened if you made that joke? I don't know. I don't know. But I wanted to make sure it was his moment, not yeah. my moment. So um, the commission, you know, it was spotlight on the commissioner, not on mm-hmm. me. Um but it's just funny, this kind of balance that you, I feel like, I, you know, I find myself on because I'm always in these very serious situations. I'm yes. Not a serious person. I watched a number of your videos and I'm just sitting there like, hmm, Amazon, antitrust, monopolies. And I have so many questions about all of that. So when did you start down your path that led you here to where you are right now? Oh, geez. I think birth. I don't know. I mean, it's been a never ending path. A never-ending path. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and very circuitous, you know. Which is what I found actually from all all of the women I speak to on on my podcast say the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like zigzag, zigzag. For Had, sure. Could never have predicted I would end up here. You know. Um, yeah, and you you look back and you think, well, that was a misstep. But then you're like, well, it all got me where I am today. And a lot of it seems like it didn't make sense, but it all kind of comes together. And the older I get, the more I'm seeing things coming together. Um, There was something really random. Oh, now I'm not going to remember it. There was a moment where, oh, now I'm remembering it. I, um, after I worked at the New York Attorney General's office, I actually had a startup company for a while. This is not even on my LinkedIn or anything, so it's kind of secret. This is exclusive, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I started a web startup that was called The Parent Maze. Wow. And it was actually when Facebook was first doing its whole login with Facebook thing, like the social grid, as they called it, Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of funny because now I write a lot of critical things about Facebook. But at that time... Um, I was a new parent and I was really frustrated at how long it took me to like find any kind of services. And especially as a working mom, I was like, I don't have time to go through these listservs, which is what most people use is like these listservs where they say, does anybody know of a, you know, a, a night nurse? I was looking for a night nurse because my first child traumatized me so much with the lack of sleep. I ended up concluding that I couldn't afford a night nurse, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, I spent hours and hours trying to find one, and I could only find ones that were really expensive. And I was like, I'm sure there's someone who would do this for me for a lower price. It was actually in the middle of a recession. Wow. Yeah. Um, in the end, my second child slept totally fine, so it worked out. But, Look um, at that. <laughs> but. Um, I just that process of trying to find services as a parent was so time consuming and I was like we have this new social grid where you can use Facebook to get recommendations and we can all log in and see our friends recommendations so that was the startup that I had started and it turned out um, that it ended up not working out my partner and I both needed to go back to our jobs full time and make money and we gave it up 
Um, but in the process of doing that, I met all these women who were starting up their companies at that same time. I love it. Wow. Right, because I was going to all these startup events and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that was 2000 and what year was that? Gosh, 2010, 10? I think. Yeah. Um, so then I start this podcast, my podcast in 2016. And I'm like, wait a second. All these women I met back in 2010 that were starting up their companies are really successful now. Like they're... Some of their companies had really been, you know, taken off. Like yeah. this woman named Lynn Perkins, who was a CEO of a startup called Urban Sitter, which actually was very similar. It was logging in and just getting babysitters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, so necessary. Yeah. So I started reaching out to these women that I had met in the entrepreneurial world back then and having them as guests on my podcast. Wow. So it was like this weird it. kind of like... And in between that, I had gone and become an antitrust... Um, writer uh, in my current role after the startup. So I never thought I would kind of be coming back to those women. And they're just kind of all was coming together in this strange way. So even though things can seem really zigzaggy, it all forms who I am and the skill set that I have, obviously, and the perspectives that I bring to everything. So for sure. What what a journey. Wow. It's it's very like very incredible that the community that you built at that time in 2010 you know you were able to create the women killing it podcast and you're able to share those experiences from then and now and also you know gain so much from it yeah and I can't say I kept in touch with them all in the meantime like now I think I probably would um now that as my my job as a journalist really taught me about the importance of building community Mm -hmm. um in order to have sources, you have to have community, basically. Um, and then now with the podcast, I try to keep in touch, although obviously it can be challenging. Well, I mean, you have so many different hats that you're wearing, so it's definitely, I'm sure. Please tell me more about your journey from becoming an attorney to investigative journalist. Okay, well, I got a rough start uh, as an attorney, I will say. <laughs> I'm not a long-suffering person. <laughs> So if I don't like a job, I don't tend to hang around for a long time. Um, so in my first six years of being a lawyer, I had five jobs. And I just kept being like, nope, this is not the one for me either. No, nope, that's not working out. Um, so I worked at a big firm. That was mostly to try to pay down my student loans. I didn't really expect to enjoy that too much. Yeah. Um, from there, um, I worked at the D.C. Circuit as a staff attorney. I actually worked with um, now Chief Justice jo- John Roberts. Wow. He was a judge on that court when I was there. Yeah. Um, Were you in D.C. at all during this time? Yeah. I, so I lived in D.C. for 10 months during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only lasted that job for 10 months. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> that, was, um, that was largely um, also because my husband then a boyfriend at the time was down there with me and we were not adjusting well to dc at that time at that phase of our life because we were still enjoying the new york lifestyle now it wouldn't matter since i'm a older mother but at the time of being young and single we were like dc why don't they go out on why don't they go out on monday tuesday and wednesday in this town (laughs) um so true (laughs) they start to more now i I, it's gotten a lot more lively this was 15 years ago it's gotten a lot more lively of a city than it was at that time yeah um but anyway yeah so i got to work with these um judges at that court uh the dc circuit and then um 
then from there, I took a job at it was coined a civil rights law firm. It really wasn't civil rights. It was really employment discrimination, which is yeah. civil rights because it's based on race and gender. But that job was like combat on yeah. a daily basis. Whew. I was not cut out for that. <laughs> yeah. And I had this really heavy caseload. I will say the great thing about that job, because I had such a heavy caseload, I got to do insane experiences. Like I was ar- doing oral argument in the Southern District of New York. I was doing my own trials. I was doing everything. So I got like extensive litigation experience. Yeah. But I was not very happy because it was very, very um, combative. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the next job after that? Um, I taught legal writing at New York Law School, and then I went to the New York Attorney General's office. So it was a lot, a lot in a short period of time. Um, And then I really enjoyed my time at the New York AG's office. Um, And then the uh, startup was kind of like, okay, my bills are all paying the child care. And, you know, my salary was going entirely to the child care and let me try something different. That's so impressive. I feel like that was such a resource. You said it was called the... um, The Parent Maze. The Parent Maze. The logo was amazing. I still miss the logo. (laughs) Can you describe it to us? It looked like a little maze. It was orange. And then it had these like cute little like, you know, strollers and um, in the maze. And they were like, the color scheme was wonderful. Were you in Brooklyn at the time that you launched it? I was. I was. Perfect community. I was. Wow. But it was hard. It was hard to get, um, you know, you're fighting through the marketing of like every company that's trying to reach working mothers who have no time. So um, it was not easy, but I learned a ton from that. And then I took a lot of the stuff that I learned from that and put it into the job that I got my current job, which um, when it started, when I started at my company, the Capital Forum, it was only six months old. And I don't think I fully understood what the company was going to do because it was like a completely new business model where they were hiring lawyers to be journalists. Wow. I don't think I fully understood that I was going to be a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I expected that they would be gathering the information and I would be analyzing it. But no, I had to quickly learn how to gather the information myself um, without the subpoena power, which is what I was used to having at the New York Attorney General's office. You could just say, you could call up anyone and say, I'm going to ask you these questions or I can send you a subpoena. Interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> Good to know. I mean, anyone who's <laughs> yeah. related, you have to have a legitimate basis, obviously. Yeah. But if I'm investigating uh, a merger or alleged anti-competitive conduct, yes, you know, you can get anyone to talk to you when you you say that you're with the New York Attorney General's office and you have the subpoena power. So if they don't want to talk to me, then I'll just send them the subpoena and they'll be forced to give me all the documents. You and... don't want that to happen. <laughs> Which sometimes we do that anyway because mm-hmm. you once you do once you actually are in a formal investigation, you do want to be sending out subpoenas. But that was quite a change from that to, hey, I'm a journalist with this new company you've never heard of and could you give me all this like really sensitive information that you have no reason no, you know, reason to give to me? <laughs> For sure. That's what, where I learned the community building. <laughs> yes. What, what type of challenges did you face at that time? Oh, man. It was tough. My very first, I, first I was covering just mergers and acquisitions. And the very first one that I was covering was um, Nielsen, you know, Nielsen ratings. I'm not familiar. They're Please the ones share. that do the TV ratings. So okay. they were the ones that forever would determine like what TV programs existed or not. Because they were like, they had a monopoly over TV ratings. And 
you know, that's how advertisers would decide whether or not they were going to advertise with your show was based on these ratings, okay? So they were a monopolist. They still, um, you know, things have been changing a lot with the markets, but they were a monopolist since, like, the 60s. That's why you see those same commercials for yeah. the same shows. It's <laughs> yeah. just like, repeat, repeat. <laughs> and... um so the the for that was uh, they were buying another company that was called Arbitron, which was also developing what everybody wanted at the time, which was the ability to measure audiences across platforms, so that you mm. could see them on TV, you could see them on internet, you could see them on phone, you know, radio, all all to, all as one um, service. And so they were acquiring the one other company that had potential to do that to do that innovation. So I thought it was a problematic merger. Um, but trying to get sources about the big bad monopolist that determines which TV shows exist was super, super challenging. <laughs> Sounds like it. Wow. People were worried about their jobs. And even even off the record sources, that was definitely the hardest one I've ever had. People are scared of a monopolist. So did, did you receive a lot of no's and maybe like oh, one yeah. yes? Oh yeah. Okay. And when, when that happened, you just had to just kind of use the information that you had and just go with it? Yeah, I mean, I had to just keep trying. Yeah. Um, just keep trying. And uh, it was good. It helped me develop a, th- a thicker skin. And I think women in general, and all humans, but women in particular, maybe suffer from this more, this fear of hearing no. Yes. I, I was going <laughs> to ask, but you've just opened up that can. How How is it saying no? How How is it... Maybe the the first few times in your career when you when you said no, what what did it take to get to that point where you're like, I'm gonna firmly say no and and walk away? Or okay, so this is the other side of it. This is me saying no. I yes. heard a lot of no's. A lot of people telling me no. Yes. Um, which is, I think women have a hard time hearing no and and not letting that um, stop them from trying, right? Yes. But then also we do have a hard time saying no. No is just a hard word at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing and saying. Saying no and drawing our boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, some of the stuff, I think it comes with age, and I hope that there's a way for the younger women to kind of short-circuit it a little bit. Um, I know the millennial generation. Are you millennial? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. I am, like, so impressed by the millennial generation. Like, they've taught me a lot when I've interviewed them on my podcast, and I think they have more gutso to say no. Um, but for me, it really came with being at the top of more hierarchies instead of at the bottom of a hierarchy. It's hard to say no when you're at the bottom of a hierarchy, um, professionally. And then now I don't have a problem saying no. I really don't. I have too much to do. Do you have any? (laughs) True. Very true. Way too much to do. You're killing it. On this podcast, in your own, and in life, do you have any tips for anyone looking to, you know, incorporate no into their vocabulary and just as a response to the things that they're just not able to do? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, it's important to identify what are the things that you want to be doing. So I've talked about this um, when I've talked about the lessons that I've learned from my podcast is I had one guest, um, Alicia Tillman, who's chief marketing officer of SAP. And she said there's always, excuse me, she said that there are always 20% of your tasks or your workload that's not serving you. And that you need to constantly be shedding that and giving that off as an opportunity to somebody else. So I think the first challenge is identifying what to say no to. And so is it something that's not going to serve you, not going to make you grow? 
and also not going to bring you joy and not going to be in line with your purpose that you're here for. So in order to know that, you need to spend some time doing internal work about what is your purpose that you're here for um, and what brings you joy, okay? And then, of course, if you're at the bottom of a hierarchy and you don't have a choice, you might get fired, and you can't say no, yes. right? So you have to look at both what is it that you want, what tasks do you want to take on, what ones don't, don't you want to take on, and then <laughs> what can you get away with saying no to, and what the consequence is really going to be. Is it going to be that you get fired, or is it going to be uh, that you know your employer learns what your boundaries are? Boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I, my mother actually was an entrepreneur. Um, she had a bunch of daycare centers, and um, she always told me, you know, I've got some employees that I just know they don't stay late, and so I don't ask them. So I don't fire them. I just don't ask them to stay late because they've drawn that boundary. So yeah. she encouraged me to draw boundaries in my career. You know, if it's not going to get you fired, <laughs> for sure, and it's not going to meaningfully impact your advancement, um, then you can't be pleasing everybody all the time. I feel like that's a common thing for a lot of us. You know, as women, we just feel like we're just supposed to just, you know, kill people with kindness and just... You know, just yes, 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 instead of the no, no, no. But I, I do appreciate what you just shared with, with, you know, myself and listeners just to really do the research within yourself, figure out, are you going to get fired? Are you, where are you in this hierarchy of life? Yeah. You know, and then also just knowing yourself and what you value and all of those things. But I also think women don't say yes enough to the scary things. Okay. Taking risks. Yeah. So yeah. say... If something terrifies you, you know, or makes you scared that you're not capable of it, or maybe you don't deserve to do that, or it's going to get you totally outside of your comfort, comfort zone and what you're used to doing, but you know that it will advance you in some way and it will make you grow and challenge you, then those are the things you have to say yes to. For sure. I'm all about <laughs> taking a risk. This podcast is a risk. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, <laughs> for sure. I think that's something that we all can take away from from just life is just really getting comfortable outside of your comfort zone. It's so it's such a risky place to be, but it really feels good to just look back at, at what you've been able to accomplish by doing so. That's a helpful reminder for sure. <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm really curious about antitrust law. I feel like a lot of millennials a lot of people have no idea what that even means and as i was doing my own research i'm you know i'm using amazon and those are questions for later but what what does antitrust law mean to you and and um you know the work that you're doing to to share more to shed more light on antitrust law so the reason why i care about antitrust law is that i think it's about having a level playing field for competition and giving everyone equal opportunity. Um, so it closely aligns with my passion for feminism um, because you know, feminism is making sure that everybody has an equal opportunity to compete in the marketplace regardless of their gender. And um, antitrust is about making sure that every company has an equal opportunity to compete regardless of their size and that there's not you know, some dominant firms that can keep them out and make them not able to compete, right? And not able to bring their best products and services to the market 
that everyone can benefit, that all consumers can benefit. You know, just like we want women and people of color to be able to bring their talents to the world and not be shut out by a cartel. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Sponsored this, sponsored <laughs> that. It's just it becomes a part of your norm and you don't even necessarily realize that when you're on these websites sponsor these are the posts that you see and how does that happen and essentially what the work that you're doing to you know reveal more information for people like myself who have no idea about any of this stuff you know is just really advocating for those smaller businesses to have an equal opportunity and playing field right and so what i work on primarily now are the tech platforms like primarily google amazon and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And what I worry about with them, as I like to say, is that they're playing the game and they're controlling the game itself. Sounds really bad. Right? Like, yeah. imagine if you're playing like another team in football and they're like, we're going to tilt the stadium at a 90 degree angle because we own the stadium while we're playing with you, you know, and you're going to have to run straight uphill while we play against oh, you. Oh, God. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I, um, that, you know, is just not good for the economy it's not good for the american dream and i think the american dream is really important for our democracy to believe that if you bring the best product or service that you will be rewarded not that a tech giant is going to say hey you know you're competing against us so we're going to put you like for example google will put you on page four of the search results if you're competing against their google shopping service right um, or Amazon now is also seeing a product that sells well, copying it, and then putting its own Amazon Basics product in the top of the of the website, so that that's what you see and that's what's promoted. You know, and I just think this is a problem. I call it platform privilege, the incentive and ability of a platform, a tech platform, to prioritize its own goods and services. And I think it's, you know, it's just flat out unfair. It is, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the huge problems that we're seeing today. And, you know, when people see how big Google and um, Amazon and Facebook are, they often think it's just because they're the best, that that's how they've gotten so big, but it's not. What they've done is all of them largely have taken whatever their monopoly power was in. Say Google did have the best search engine, okay? I'll give them that. But that doesn't mean that they have to also be the Maps provider and the um, Android um, phone provider. And, you know, they took their monopoly in search and leveraged it into everything else. You know, when everybody started switching to using search on mobile phones instead of on desktop search, to make sure that Amazon still had, I mean, sorry, for Google to make sure it still had its monopoly on search, it then created the and bought actually had bought the Android operating system and then told phone makers if you're going to use the Android operating system you need to use our search as your default app so nobody had a chance to get in there and, it's and like actually iPhone. compete it's like right so many of these different companies right yeah right yeah Apple Monopoly. gets off easy but they're doing a lot of the same things as Google Amazon and Facebook <laughs> why do you think Apple gets off easy um, one thing is that their business model does not require them to collect data the way that Facebook and Google do. So Facebook and Google, their business model primarily is digital advertising, targeted digital advertising based on your individual characteristics. So they're in the business of collecting data about us constantly. They've gotten a lot of terrible PR about what happens when that data gets out. 
Either it gets leaked to someone like Cambridge Analytica or it gets weaponized in elections. People are getting highly targeted. Um, so they've had a lot of bad PR because of these effects that we're seeing. Terrorism on the Facebook platform. Um, Apple has largely been immune to that. It likes to take the high ground about data. But the reality is data is just not important to its business model. <laughs> if Got it was, it. believe me, it'd be yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. They just use their data to collect your face, and that's how you open your phone. Right. So they're I not mean, selling your, yeah. I understand. I mean, they do have an ethos of privacy protection, but I think you have to always think about a corporation. I don't think there's good corporations and bad corporations. Corporations are interested in maximizing profits. For Apple, data is not as important to maximize profits as it is for Facebook and Google. So um, the role of antitrust enforcers and regulators is to protect people and, the, and competition from companies being able to just pursue profits without any regard to the negative consequences. Well, I thank you for your contribution to this because it's so necessary. So I'm thinking about supporting local. Do you do that as a practice of just being able to, you know, support the smaller businesses instead of going straight to Amazon like so many of us do? I try. In Brooklyn, it's hard because some of the boutiques only have like $300 dresses. And you're like, okay, I want to support local, but these stores are not that cheap. Yeah. <laughs> the cost of production. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, just everything is so high end. Right? Yeah. Um, so I do when I can support local. I don't. I've been really, really trying not to buy on Amazon. I've realized that a lot of the things that you thought you need two-hour shipping for or two-day shipping for, you don't actually need any with any kind of an urgency. Um, I also realized that I was buying things that I wouldn't otherwise buy. And I'm trying to reduce my consumption for a number of reasons, for economic reasons, but also just for environmental reasons. And um, you don't need to be able to like get an idea of your head. Oh, it'd be nice to have this thing and push a button and have it, right? Like it's good to create that friction that makes you have to go to a store and buy it later. Um, Interact with people. Yeah, you know, makes you just not buy it, <laughs> yeah. and that's fine because you don't need that crap. Yeah, you know? it's very <laughs> like, true. So <laughs> my cart I, is filled with things I don't need. <laughs> yeah, so I've saved money by not using Amazon, and I've realized that I just don't need two-day shipping for most things. So occasionally I'll get lazy, or you know, I'll forget that it's a kid's birthday party, and it's and there's no time in between now and then to get a gift or something. But I've really been trying to reduce my Amazon usage. <laughs> what inspired you to reduce your consumption? Do you Are there any other things that you do within your lifestyle where you're reducing your carbon footprint or your consumption of sorts? My carbon footprint, unfortunately, has gone in the wrong direction because for years I was living in apartments, didn't have cars. Now with the family, I have a house and a car. So I think I've gone the wrong way with that. <laughs> It happens. Um, I don't eat red meat. Haven't eaten it since I was 12. So I can't be blamed for any of the methane that's coming from cows. Um, so there's that. Um, I could definitely do better with the, with the consumption. But I just think um, we don't need all this stuff. It makes us unhappy. And it's bad for the environment. So, And we don't need to support monopolists by buying it agreed <laughs> agreed i have a lot to work on but i'm i'm ready to work on it you know for sure so how does life outside benefit your work well um you know it's super hard doing the juggle with parenting and working 
But I've found that I am such a better worker since I became a mother because I just don't mess around. I'm like a well-oiled machine. Like there are so many things that need to happen in a day that I'm not going to sit at my desk and just like waste time. Yeah. Right on. There's a lot of time wasting. <laughs> there is no time wasting yeah. by me. Yeah. I, do, I really waste very little time. Um, and so that also requires me to do those things like we talk about, look at what doesn't serve me, what can other people do, take on, um, that would give them an opportunity that I don't need to be doing. Um, very efficient. I'm very obsessed with efficiency. Um, so there's certainly that aspect of it that I've become like literally a machine. Um, and then of course, you know, you always, I think motherhood makes you think about what's your contribution to society because I'm not hanging out with my kids. I'm not home being there for them. I better be doing something that's important. So I think certainly, um, having that family life made me want to make sure that I was fulfilling whatever um, I'm here to do on this earth. We're going to talk more about that in a little while. So how do you recharge your batteries? Yeah, I'm not very good at that. I'm just trying. I'm trying hard to get better at that. Um, but it's not my strength. And in fact, I'm actually going to start focusing my podcast on how to kill it with ease because I've figured out how to kill it, but it's also killing me a little bit. So <laughs> that is so real. Kill it with ease. So that that's is... going to be season two. Season one is like 120 episodes and then season two is going to be how to kill it with ease. I'm going to start that in like February. 120 <laughs> episodes for season one. Wow. If you haven't listened to Women Killing It podcast, you've got to listen. There's a lot of amazing guests and episodes um, and you just got to get into it. Well, Sally, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh well, a couple different things, um, both with antitrust and women. Okay, I guess I want to. I want to have deconcentrated power to some measure. I know all of the forces are against me on that. You know, money and power is always trying to concentrate. But I think that we're in a state of crisis with highly concentrated economic and political power in this country. And um, I want to have played some role in deconcentrating that power and making it more dispersed amongst more different companies and different people and having some of that hierarchy upended. Um, and then I want to um, have been kind and been a good mother and wife. Um, you know, making the world a better place than, I, than it was when I got here. Um, you know, making the, hopefully making the barriers for women a little bit less. Your podcast helps me do that for sure. <laughs> awesome. I'm so thankful for it and I'm thankful for you. Oh, thank you. That's so wonderful to hear. Did I cut you off? No. Okay, all right. Um, Please tell our listeners where they can find you, Sally. A few different places. Um, the uh, website for my podcast is called womenkillingit.com. And there's actually a mailing list there you can sign up for and get the seven steps to killing it action plan. 
can't wait. <laughs> and then um, my antitrust writing and speaking is on my website, sallyhubbard.com. And I'm on Twitter, Sally underscore Hubbard. Love to connect with people there. Thank you so much, Sally. Thanks so great for having the time. It was nice to go back and do some memories of my whole long journey that I've had here. <laughs> well, we appreciate, I appreciate you joining me today and sharing more on the life and experiences of Sally and the Women Killing It podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Nikiva. Absolutely. I would love to hear from you. Reach out and share more about how you're living life beyond your title at beyondmytitle at gmail.com. Follow along on social media at Beyond My Title and like, share, and subscribe to hear the latest episodes first. This podcast was brought to you by Bib Media. Born in Brooklyn, believe the hype.